Hey, welcome to Clinic Gym Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josh Satterley, and I have spent the last 12 years trying to find the perfect model of musculoskeletal healthcare. And I think I found it. I think it's combining chiropractic care with excellent rehab skills and then transitioning those patients into an exercise program at a gym where there's great communication between you and the people running the gym. We call that the clinic gym hybrid model. And over the last two years, we've really been trying to perfect it with the goal of having 100 clinic gym hybrid facilities opening up here in the U.S. I'm Dr. Josh Satterley, and welcome to Clinic Gym Radio. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Clinic Gym Radio. And lucky for all my listeners today, you have a clinic gym gangster here with Dan Swinsco. Dan, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing today, Josh? Uh, I'm doing fantastic, and I'm so excited for you to be here today because I think this is the... (laughs) I hope that you can share a story today about your own beliefs and uh, treatment and injury and everything that you are a true believer in kind of the blended clinic and gym model, Mm -hmm. but God has a sense of humor and decided (laughs) to put your ass to the test. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I learned more firsthand than I ever wanted to. That's for sure. Yeah. So before we jump into what happened and and what's been going on in your rehab and whatnot, uh, you are a physical therapist. You're up in Seattle, Washington, Mm -hmm. um, and big believer in the FMS, the FMS, the functional movement systems and the SFMA. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I first came across you, you were, uh, you did the, what that used to be the mentorship. Is that right? Oh, yep. And in the, Indiana in the summertime. Yeah. When Michelle Desert <laughs> left you on the side of the, the curb, right? That was a great time. Yeah. Good memory. Yeah. Everybody remembers that. <laughs> yeah. But also this is back in the days of the, the, what do you call it? The summits, the, the functional movement, like week long mm-hmm. summit they used to host. Yep. So give me a little sense of, you know, back in the day, because you've got a couple gray hairs and had a few birthdays, right? So <laughs> I'm going to guess at the start of your career, you didn't know anything about the FMS. You kind of discovered it and yeah. take us through a little of the journey of what sure. happened. Yeah, gosh, I'm, I don't remember how I first came across it. You know, my career started before there was an internet. So even trying to remember how you come across stuff before that, mm-hmm. it seems funny. Um, but I, I had my FMS so long ago that Gray and, Lee, Gray and Lee taught it in person. It was level one. Um, it got me to New Jersey for the first time. So that was kind of cool. But yeah, I flew across the country to learn from those guys in about, I don't know, 2001, two, three, something like mm-hmm. that maybe. Um, and learned a lot from it. I remember that was the first time I'd felt a kettlebell in my hand also. Really? That uh, taught me a few things because I remember... Gray, probably from one of his books talking about kettlebells. And I'm reading the book with a dumbbell in my hand thinking, how different could it possibly be? I've got, I don't need to buy a kettlebell. I've got a dumbbell. And, and also, they were incredibly hard to find to even buy back then. Back then. then, they absolutely were. It's a whole different, it's hard to imagine now. You had to go meet and, a guy in a dark alley. So, you know, <laughs> had a Russian accent. With the oxen. <laughs> yeah. Are you, am I buying a lecture results here or a kettlebell? Don't ask, Right. And so, um, anyway, once I got one into my hand, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is tremendously different. So then it kind of started my mind on, I need to learn more about this. And somehow or another, that led me to TPI and SFMA and it just all now, kept on going. Quick. How long were you in practice at this point when you went through the first FMS? I uh, graduated from PT school in 91. So about 10 years. Okay. And very, would you say you're following a very traditional outpatient orthopedic model up to this point? If we use the tradition to think hot packs and ultrasound, no, but it was manual therapy, exercise, and ice and stem, then yeah, in that regard. Okay. And, um, and so that, that, uh, you go to those classes, you do the TPI thing, kettlebell, FMS, the, the crazies that are the FMS instructors at the time, right? Um, and, and what do you kind of, what's your, how does your model shift? Oh, it, it was just like this missing link and it just put a lot of thoughts that I had together and it put some things that I learned but had holes in, filled mm-hmm. in the holes and it just, this, how I look at a person move and how I tried to figure things out, it just, it jived with, with what I already thought but expanded on it a lot and uh, what's the right way where they, you make it just so, or not a ritual, what's the word I want? The, the Greg mm-hmm. Rose way of doing things where it's just Default very... Method. Yeah, where it's it's standard operating procedure, right? So yeah. it's just a okay. if this, then this, if this, then this. So algorithm. rather 
Uh, yeah, exactly. It gave an yeah. algorithm thank you to my, my line of thinking that allows me to be more consistent with people each and every time with each and every person. All right. And I know that you've done everything you can get your hands on the FMS world. You've done everything you can get your hands on in the TPI world. And how long ago, I know that you work a lot in baseball because is mm-hmm. it, does your son play? Is that what gets you into? Yeah, well, world? I just love baseball anyway. And then happen, okay. you know, when you love baseball and you have a kid, you just start doing what you love with your kids and you brainwash yeah. them as best you can. Uh, but yeah, so my son was a, was a good player uh, from Little League all the way up through. He ended up winning state as a senior in high school. Uh, okay. And now he is retired and now he's just a guy. Okay. So you did a lot of baseball work and I'm guessing kind of spent some nights and weekends understanding shoulder rehab and shoulder health. Is that right? For sure. Specific to baseball uh, throwers and whatnot. And you presented at Cressy's place, uh, what, a year ago, two years ago now? Uh, the first time would have been a couple years before that. So yeah, I, I presented um, at his first Florida location. I don't know, this is 2020. 2017, maybe sound right. About the every first month year. of 2020 feels like a year. Yeah. <laughs> you say that again. So 2017, so, uh, you go out to his Florida location, and I did. Uh, is- I've got a class I put together called Kettlebells for Clinicians. Okay, and uh, I I did that there, and uh, Eric was gracious enough to have me, and so uh, strangely enough, he had me back again um, to this year in January to uh, present on the ultimate sandbag and how you can use that for, for rotational athletes in baseball in particular. Okay. And so up to this point, if we were to ask you on your way out of Cressy's place the second time, mm-hmm. uh, if I said, give yourself a grade on your understanding of shoulder rehab, what would you, <laughs> what would you have graded yourself? <laughs> I, you know, I probably would have said something with a good grade, but I tell you now in hindsight, <laughs> I didn't know as much as I thought I did. I know that that's, that's the great part, right? Is like leaving Cressy's, you're probably in the top 5% of all clinicians and understanding or in confidence of understanding overhead athletes, rotator cuff and, you know, shoulder mechanics and biomechanics. Uh, And then let's transition to uh, how this whole thing went about. So I think you were just (laughs) telling me you're, you're, you decide you're going to do a powerlifting meet. Yeah, so I decided to have a goal of of uh, competing in a powerlifting meet. Um, and what age was this that you made the decision? Uh, so this would have been 2000, yeah, um, 53, whatever. Okay. So um, I decided. But you're in your 50s. I mean, this is, you're an active dude, but you're, you're in your 50s. I, I'm trying to outlay the patient demographics yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, not, not as much tread left on the tires anymore. So yeah, I just decided I didn't, I had enough patients who had done it and I, I've always enjoyed deadlifting and, um, I was never been much of a bench presser or much of a squatter. Um, I've got two knees, a lot of arthritic changes, one that people want to replace. And so I thought what a great way of kind of seeing if I can challenge myself in ways that maybe people wouldn't expect I could succeed in. Okay. And my biggest concern going in there was the squat. And of course that ended up going off just fine. Um, but I wanted to do the, for anybody who's ever not done one of these, there's a lot going on. There's a lot to choreograph to be in the right place at the right time to get hundreds of people on the stage, off the stage, be where you're supposed to be for your age group, for your weight group, blah, blah, blah. So there's a lot of chore- choreography essentially. And so for the rookie meets, you're assigned a mentor. And so um, my mentor is the one that chose my weights and everything. And when we got there, all I was concerned about was the squat. Never even gave the bench press a thought, but that was the one that uh, ended up changing things for me. Now, just, again, going patient demographics here, you were a 53-year-old guy going to your first powerlifting meet. For those, I'm sure that everybody knows this, but I'm just going to say, powerlifting meet is made up of uh, three attempts at a max for bench press, three attempts at a max for squat, back squat, three attempts at a max for deadlift. Mm-hmm. You can win individually in those uh, in those, uh, exercises. And you can also win overall weight. So they add them all up and you get your total pound. That's your total you score. Right. You can win that way as well. 53 year old rookie. You found out, was it mid November about a February? So you basically had two, three, two months. three months, maybe if we're kind. Yeah. Well, so uh, I remember, um, 
Plus all the holidays, which you were, I'm sure you were incredibly consistent training. (laughs) I ate very well and trained all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember finding out um, by way of an email when I was visiting my sister over Thanksgiving. So it was uh, the 20 something of November that I found out on February 1st, they finally set the date because at the end of one year. December 1st to February 1st. You're right. So it's two months. Yeah. So I had two months. And so that particular day, I, since I saw the email and I um, visited Jim when I visit my sister, I went there to find out I have no idea. I kind of had an idea on my squat at a grade. I knew exactly what my deadlift would be, uh, but I had no idea on my bench press. So um, I load up a bar and started bench pressing to find out what the top was. And uh, the, the last lift I lifted, I felt a little something in my shoulder, kind of hurt a little bit, thought, okay, well, whatever, I guess that's my max. So uh, now I knew what my max was and I could program off of that, right? So know where the top is and you can work percentages was my thought. And uh, that little niggle that was just right there that just never really went away. And then uh, when it came game time and I was, did my squat, I was thrilled. And it uh, came time for the bench. First bench press was fine. Second bench press reminded me I had that niggle. And the third one <laughs> left a permanent mark. So, uh, yeah, if it weren't for the spotters, uh, I would have had my head cut off. It was just that nothing was there. I heard this horrific sound. And um, you know when things tear when you can hear them. And so for those people listening, describe what you know clinically actually happened. What I know clinically actually happened is I have two full thickness rotator cuff tears, one in my subscapularis, one in my supraspinatus, and a longitudinal tear in my long head biceps tendon. Okay. And Which, I thought when it happened, I tore my labrum. Okay. Because it made more of a crunching sound than a tearing yeah. sound. Okay. So that, and, that, was, that was that moment. And the best part of this is that you, uh, you have this on film because it was being filmed for powerlifting meet. And I've seen the video that you posted on Facebook and maybe we can post it up when this podcast goes live. If you wouldn't mind sharing it with me, Dan, I'd love to throw it up in the Facebook post about this podcast. Okay. Uh, just to illustrate, but I can, I can look at it now without throwing up. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty gnarly because I mean, the camera's not too, it's decently far away. It's not on the platform. You basically can eccentrically load your shoulder, right? You go all the way down. Mm-hmm. And then when did the actual, when did you know things were done? When you yeah, went when, to press it back up or was it at the bottom of the eccentric? Yeah, exactly. And one of the things for people who've never done one that's so interesting about a bench press in a competition is you don't do anything until they tell you. The only thing you have control over is when you unrack it off the bar mm-hmm. and you don't get to lower it until they tell you and you don't get to press it until they tell you. So, so you're waiting kind of for a command to say lower? They say, yep. Now it could be touching your chest and they will tell you when to press, right? Correct. So when they say press, you go. And so the idea is to get it into that position that they want so you don't stay there for any length of time. And then when they said go, I went for a fraction of a second. And then, then, you know, my life came crashing down. And And just because you know what the injury is, I mean, you know it was full thickness tear and whatnot. Was your immediate thought like, I have incredible searing pain? Was it there's no pain, there's just, there's nothing there? Uh, What was the sensation you had? Oh, it was, the, the pain was intense. It's the kind of a pain that it's a good thing. It only lasts for a second while the tearing is happening. Otherwise you, you wouldn't be able to hold still. It was incredible. So um, but only lasted for a second. That, I mean, in, in a full second went away as well. It didn't go away, but what was remaining hurt, but it was a manageable hurt. Yeah. So I was holding my arm and my mentor's like, what happened? I'm like, I don't know. I heard something tear. He's like, can you go on? I'm like, well, let's find out. Cause we still have the deadlift coming up. And, <laughs> and so, um, the kind of the fun story is my deadlift was in about an hour is when I was scheduled to be on the platform and we were able to, I just, I iced it and walked around for a little bit, kind of wiggled around and he got me some bands and I just stood on the bands and just was to see if I can pack my shoulder and resist anything. And little by little, we kind of worked up a bar and started going up and I ended up, I think I got three fifteen after that an hour later and end up winning my age group. So it was kind of cool that I went home with a gold medal, but I couldn't move my arm. <laughs> gold medal and a full thickness rotator cuff tear. <laughs> yeah, two of them. Yeah. Two, two awards. Woohoo! Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is, it's, uh, you ever watch The Hangover where the guy pulls his tooth out and he points and he goes, <laughs> yep, that's what winning feels like right there. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. And Except you didn't have the overhead ability to actually point at either shoulder. I'll tell you, it was impressive. I couldn't even, I couldn't use two hands to take off my shoes. Wow. Yeah. 
It was wow. something. So immediately, uh, your clinic, clinical brain, I'm sure, is running, thinking, what did you think happened at first, and what did you want to know? Like, well, what happened at first? Test on yourself, or you know? No, I didn't do any of that. I didn't. Yeah? I mean, it was just I couldn't even move my arm. I mean, like literally, um, you know. Could imagine you brush your the, teeth? Could you wipe oh, your butt? None, you none, none of that. None of that. None of that at first. Awesome. Um, yeah, I know. And it was, it was about an hour away. And because those three events that you're talking about literally takes all day. Um, yeah. I told my wife, don't bother. I'll tell you about it. And there was a link where she could follow online if she had an interest. So I still had to drive home, driving home one handed, like I said, taking off my lifting shoes one handed. And so I was just really worried about what am I going to tell my wife? She can see her think and maybe correctly. So I was kind of an idiot. I just so, think <laughs> the fact you can't get out of your singlet and then you, you know, pop into like the Applebee's for a quick meal. Like who the hell's a weirdo in the singlet? <laughs> right. Yeah. Who's this guy in his underwear? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it was all of that. And then it happened on a Saturday. So I kind of had Sunday to, to kind of start ruminating about what might be wrong, but I was, I would have bet you dinner at a nice restaurant. I tore a labrum. So I was pretty confident I was going to have surgeries just a matter of when. Okay. And so, um, then it's just a matter of, okay, well, let's uh, call a doctor friend and get in and get some information. And uh, doctor did an ultrasound on my shoulder in office and saw the biceps tear and um, saw just stuff that detail wise, you couldn't tell with the rotator cuff. There's just a lot of water there. So just, there's tears, but uh, he recommended more detail of an MRI. So we got the MRI and then that's when he told me I'd did not you get an arthrogram full or just thickness. Yeah, up. it was an MRI arthrogram. Okay. Now here you are, a dude that's seen how many arthrograms in your life, how many... <laughs> Patients with rotator cuff tears of, you know, all grades, and and you're you would have bet a lot of money on a labral tear, and so you're surprised there's no labral tear, mm-hmm. labrum's totally intact, mm-hmm. which is also that that's interesting to me just knowing the mechanism. I'm thinking of bench press when you tore, basically the humeral head wants to shove posterior and a little bit superior right because of the angle of your arm there, right. And the only thing holding it, the, the glenoid uh, to the humerus at that point after you tore everything else was the, you tore through the long head, right? Yeah. So I think it had more of an anterior drive uh, to it because my elbows were below my shoulder. So I think as I was initiating, I was thinking okay. that, um, you know, if you, if you think about now that we know what's torn, that mm-hmm. it probably, you know, went that direction. So, mm-hmm. you know, a slap lesion probably would not have been uncommon with that. It just didn't happen with me. Yeah. So thankfully. Yeah. And I wonder if your pec was, you know, the, the, uh, seatbelt limiter to not oh, let your humor go back. Right. To yeah. Go funny. Through. You should say that, that that's what the doctor wanted to rule out. He said he was pretty confident I'd have a torn pec and he thought for sure that that would need some repair. Hmm. So that's why he pushed for the MRI. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, we were both wrong. It was kind of, yeah. kind of cool to get that information. Incredible packs that are huge and resilient, right? Yeah. I, I really almost need support for them. They're so big. Yeah. You should donate some <laughs> to charity. Most people could use some packs. Anyways. Uh, so there you are. Now it's, it's, let's say by Wednesday, you've, I don't know when you had the MRI, you've got all the reports back. You talked to your doctor friend Sunday night. You're sure you were going to have surgery of some sort, right? Mm-hmm. And now, Wednesday or whenever the MRI comes around. And when did you start kind of thinking, maybe this is not surgical. Maybe there's another path. Well, as soon as we knew it was a cuff tear, then my thought is, you know, he was like, well, who do you like for surgery? I'm like, how do we know I need it? Yeah. Right. I mean, let's, let's see what happens. And so, you know, and I'm still not done yet. I mean, like I was telling you before we started, no one would know I have anything wrong with my arm right Mm -hmm. now. I mean, I know things still aren't normal. Um, but at this point in time, anything that involves pulling is back to normal. Anything that involves pushing is still weak. Um, but unless I'm at the very bottom of a push-up or the very depth of a bench press position, I don't hurt. Well, let me ask you this as a clinician, because I, I, I've had a lot of patients where we have the discussion about surgery or not. Usually those patients are over the age of 70. And I would say if you look at the amount of work they do on a normal basis when they were 40, and the amount of work they're doing now, in my mind, they're well below that like 60% mark, right? They're retired. They're maybe playing some golf, mm-hmm. but they're not mm-hmm. doing stuff. You're in the middle of your heyday. I mean, you're 50-something years old. You're 
working full time and your your yeah. work because you're working with patients is active labor in multiple planes, lifting right. heavy shit, moving kettlebells, moving people, holding people, you know, positioning stuff. It's it's not it's it's a moderate labor activity, right? Right. Coupled to an insanely huge brain, by the way. I mean, like, but, <laughs> but it's a labor activity. And so me personally, just thinking about this as a clinician, I would be like, get the surgery, Dan. Like, what's the downside? You're going to be out for rehab period, whether you do non-surgical or surgical. So what gave you the confidence to say, let's, let's try it. Let, like, would you have done that with any other 53 year old patient that came in with a full thickness uh, rotator cuff and, and biceps? Yeah. Tendon tear? Well, I, that's such a good question because if it's anybody else, and that means somebody's going to pay for the rehab. So inevitably, you're going to have either issues with cost or issues with insurance coverage or kind of those blend in together. So yeah. I don't have to ask for permission uh, to run myself through a program. So I don't have to call the third party administrator and tell them it's important <laughs> for me to have three more visits. Right. So yeah. I just did my thing. So outside of the world of insurance constraints, that's one. But I will tell you. So that, you're saying if you would have considered any other patient, just saying, okay, what would I do with unlimited resources for unlimited rehab here? If I had unlimited resources for unlimited rehab, I mean, it wasn't like I had therapy every day. You know, I did full on what someone might call physical therapy three or four days a week. The other days, just like any other day, I was just too busy to do other stuff, but I never missed a day of work. Right. Um, but normal activity is part of rehab, right? Right. You bet. And that's, doing normal things normally. Right. And especially when you were knocked down as far as where, you know, I couldn't use my arm for anything. So I remember so well, something I never gave a thought of to anyone else who had a shoulder problem, drying my left arm or drying under my left arm. I'd have to use my right arm to lift my left arm to the, the towel rack. And then I'd hold on to the towel rack so I can dry my left arm after a shower. <laughs> so the day I was actually able to hold my left arm all by itself so I could dry it was a, was a, was a cool day. This is like um, on an old car where you have to lift the hood up and then find the kickstand right. to hold it up or it's going to chop you. Exactly. Right? That's a great analogy. Yeah. You know, um, I work between two locations and in one of them, the soap dispenser next to the sink is on the wall behind the sink. Okay. So you have to reach the length of the sink and then push the little mm -hmm. lever so soap will drop down into your hand. It was a long time before I could do that comfortably. Wow. So, um, yeah, this is the, yeah. the crazy thing. I went through a bout of, of pretty bad discogenic uh, back pain mm -hmm. and it is crazy. Like when they say pain with flexion, like, you know, my thought is, Oh, 30 degrees of flexion. No, no. Like two degrees. Like I remember <laughs> having pain, you know, that would recreate my symptoms by looking down at my, at the time, like two year old, three year old son. Yeah. You know, oh, I mean, you gosh. think about that's just cervical flexion. There's very right. little weight transfer or anything. And it's like, that's enough. And then for me, it was, Leaning forward to spit out toothpaste, I had to oh. work to a staggered stance to do that, you know? And I'm like, that's wow. not that much flexion. So I appreciate your, your struggles. So, yeah. so when did you have confidence that you were not, because you could have had a week of rehab and said, hey, this didn't go that well. I'm now going to uh, decide to get surgery. When did yeah. you have the confidence to say, nope, we're on a non-surgical path here. We're committing. We're on the Oregon um, Trail, and we're going to go all the way to the ocean. <laughs> we're going to find the Pacific. That's right. Um, I don't remember when that was that I had confidence we were going to succeed. I had confidence I was going to try, and I wasn't going to have surgery unless I failed. Um, this is July. I bet you in May, I was really confident I've made enough progress that I couldn't envision backsliding enough to where surgery was going to need to happen. <laughs> So the, the, the tear occurred February 1st and May. So you were eight, maybe 10 weeks into rehab that you felt confident enough? Yeah, something like that. Hey, I want to tell you all about Membrant. Membrant, with a D in there like Rembrandt, Membrant is an app platform. Now, this company is the one who built the Clinic Gym Hybrid app. And if you uh, purchase our accelerator program, you will get firsthand knowledge of what they do. But I think this is the next evolution in clinics who want to really give their patients better care, better service while making it more convenient. So what Membrane can do is help you design a custom app for your company. This isn't just like rebranding somebody else's. This is your app that lives on the app store and your patients can download. Now, what's the power of an app? Well, let's just say, for example, that you have a certain protocol that you want your low back pain patients to go for. So 
let's say you include the McGill Big Three, a little talk about repetitive motions and finding your kind of McKenzie protocol of reducing your, your pain through those repetitive asymptomatic movements. Well, you could tag the patients, meaning that you kind of put them on a list that says you want them to have access to the low back protocols, right? And then you could have another program of videos, articles, exercise descriptions, all that, that only go out to your patients with shoulder pain, right? Or ones that go out to patients with plantar fasciitis. If you can build that program, then what Membrane can help you do is make sure that only the patients that really need the plantar fasciitis exercises get that delivered to their phone. That thing that they're staring at, some estimates say as many as 500 times a day. All right. So check out membrant.com, membrant.com, or send me an email. I can hook you up with those guys and they can put together a fantastic program. I think it's really the future and it's one more way that technology will help you make more money while providing better care and a better business model. So check out membrant.com. Let's talk about like going from, uh, when I had asked you earlier, when you left Cresty's place, give yourself a grade on how oh. great you were at shoulder care. <laughs> yeah. And you, you know, probably would have graded yourself an A minus cause you're a little humble, right? What, what was the lowest you ever felt in this journey about your knowledge of shoulder care? Like, did you have something where you couldn't find a position of relief or you just couldn't get any, any kind of progress? And you're like, man, I'm doubting myself yeah. and my knowledge. Well, the, the day I couldn't, I almost, the night it happened, almost went to the emergency room because I couldn't find anywhere to go. I couldn't, I mean, unless I was standing, there was literally nowhere to put my arm without it hurting so bad. And whatever drugs we had in the house weren't enough. <laughs> um, I think we had some leftover Vicodin from something yeah. from years ago. And even um, like wasn't a, touching it, huh? Not, no. And so, um, that was, that first night was awful. Um, and I was on the edge. I just remember my wife was asleep and I'm like, do I wake her up? Do I wake her up? Do I wake her up? And eventually made it through the night. Um, that was really awful, but I, I've been fortunate enough that it's never really been that awful other than that one time. The first day, not with the pain, but the dysfunction or lack of ability to use it has been but you know, it's just, it's just been on a slow, steady ascent. It still hasn't stopped. Like things that I can do now as an example would be like, let's say I'm pressing a kettlebell overhead and I can push press a 52 right now. I can't quite press it. I used to be able to press it, but I can push press it. And so I would work my way, like get an eight kilo and then just DDDD, just one after the other, gradually work your way up to the heavy one. And now I can just grab a 35 and press it pretty comfortably. And then the 44 will be a little sketchy. And the, the 53 is like everything I got. But um, so the bottom keeps rising. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So there, it, it's never stopped. I've really never had a setback other than maybe a month or two out. It may have been like, say, April-ish. I kind of worked it pretty hard. And the next day I ached a little. I'm like, ooh, and... Maybe, uh, maybe I, I did too much and it was like, I don't know, six hours of the next day where I ached and then it was fine. And I've just been a little more cautious with how I proceed since then. And I've knock on wood, I've not had a setback. So, um, that's great. You been have, very, setback. have you been surprised at how slow things have gone or other times how fast they've gone? I'm surprised at how fast and how well, okay. um, my shoulder has exceeded anyone's expectations. Okay. Um, well, soon so, it'll be strong enough you can pat yourself on the back there, my man. <laughs> yeah, just takes a little more range of motion, right? That's right. So, yeah. um, well, let me ask you a couple questions. Like yeah. you're saying, like push press of 53. Uh-huh. A lot of people would struggle with the mental confidence of that thing not coming down and smashing you in the head. Mm-hmm. Right? Or like I think about a Turkish getup. You got to yep. protect the moneymaker, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> you're struggling for good looks right now. Have yeah, a 50 kettlebell come down <laughs> on your face is not going to get us in the direction that we're hoping. Yeah, right? you know, you brought up a good point. So in the process, every time something was new, it was incredibly scary. And it okay, would I wanna, let's touch on that real quick because okay. a lot of times clinically, we think this is difficult. But you're saying this wasn't difficult physically. It was scary psychologically. It was both. Yeah. I mean, I think like fear avoidance behavior is a real thing. You got to experience sure. it firsthand with a rotator cuff. 
most of the research is written around freaking low back pain, right? Like, oh, here's right. how to, and, and so dig into that a little because I'm very interested. Okay. In well, I'll tell you what it helped me when doing something for the first, like the first time I still remember where I was. I can point to the spot on the floor where I decided I would try a kettlebell swing with, with one hand. And it was at my buddy Luca Hosovar's place at Vigor Ground. And so I am there and things are starting to get better and enough to where I thought, you know, I wonder if I can handle that reflexive load and control a kettlebell swing and not have my arm fly away across the room because that's kind of how it feels like sometimes. So I tried a couple double arm swings and they felt fine. I think I had like small bell, like eight kilo bell, and then just let go with my right hand and kept it going. And it felt really good. And I was incredibly encouraged. And then it just started to get easier. It seemed like everything I tried that was new was scary and sometimes painful to some degree. If obviously if it hurt a lot, I wouldn't do it. But if, if it hurt and was scary and in my logical brain, I could say, I know I'm not in a position where I'm going to harm myself, mm-hmm. then I would give it a try. And what happened right before my eyes is a lot of that pain went away as soon as I like proved it to myself, I wasn't going to get hurt with it. It was, uh, I presumed it was just reflexive guarding and, and yeah. so on. But it was really amazing. Like usually when I exercise, I put three exercises together. So I'll do a set of this one, set of this one, set of that one. So A1, B1, C1, right? And um, I usually would set it up to where one of those three was going to be something new for me or something that's going to be really challenging. The other two would be within my abilities. And when it went to that one that was really hard that very first time, whether it was a Turkish getup or the swing or any of those kinds of things, or I remember doing push-ups on the TRX, scared me to death. Um, when you go to do them, the very first one hurts the most and scares the most. And then the next rep and the next rep and the next rep just get easier and easier and easier. And the amount of ease with which things improved within a matter of repetitions not in a matter of visits or like it would be equivalent to someone having a clinical visit, but just the amount of repet- in repetitions was amazing to me. And so um, it's like, just give your body a chance to learn it can do this and don't put it in too much in harm's way. And you'd be amazed what you might be able to get and then just ask for a little more and then just ask for a little more. And well, I've the, just been stair-stepping my way up. I hope people are listening and, and you said a lot of clinical pearls that I think are some of those things we read you know, in our, in, and we, we learn from seminars and whatnot, but there's nothing like experiencing it. You know, as my friend always says, like, I, I can't teach you to surf when we're standing on the sand. <laughs> you yeah. gotta get in there. And Good get analogy. What's interesting to me is you're saying like, you would try stuff, but what uh, I hope everybody realizes, you know, we're often, we're, we're scared of things we don't understand. And when we talk about like giving a patient, patient education is as effective for, I'll just use low back pain again. Mm-hmm. Patient education is as, as effective as manual therapy in some studies. Uh, if you just educate the person enough, you were approaching these new exercises with 20 years of understanding of the human body, tw- you know, 50 years of training, 20 years as a practicing uh, clinician. Uh, you know, you knew all of them. You'd seen them all performed. And yet, with all that knowledge, you still had fear, right? Oh, yeah. That, absolutely. Patient, who's never seen this exercise before. They don't mm-hmm. understand the joint mechanics. They don't understand the possibility. And I just think, man, may, I've been underestimating how much, how scary some of these moves will be in rehab for my yes. patients and underestimating how much I should celebrate the fact when they do get over that. Cause you Absolutely. had all the knowledge in the world and were scared shitless. <laughs> you thought your arm was going to sure. your body. Yeah. And, and having that empathy and that understanding firsthand, like you said, um, I got off the beach and I went surfing. And so now when I'm helping the next person, I can say, I know exactly how this feels and I'm right here with you. I'm not going to ask you to do something if I think something's going to go wrong. Right. right. You're like an attorney never asks a question. They don't know the answer to, um, right. therapist isn't going to ask you to do an exercise. They think you're going to fail at, mm-hmm. um, but just, and then understanding really well how to regress everything. So if I try something, that doesn't work well. I know well how to regress it. And you can just easily in flow make an exercise doable and then work your way back up from there. But yeah, uh, yeah apprehension was a big, big deal. And to see, <coughs> excuse me, to see how it changed as rapidly as it changed 
was amazing. I mean, just, I just was constantly amazed at nervous system. Yeah. Non-physiological pain, you know, that you were experiencing that firsthand and then it poof goes away. Yeah. It's like how much of that was centration of the joint and how much of that was centration of your freaking cerebellum and your brain. (laughs) Right. uh, So let me ask you this. Are there any exercise specifically that uh, let's start that you've modified since going through this yourself, like realize like either something's way too easy, way too hard, or there's too much of that psychological fear. Like when you're talking about TRX pushups, right? As you said, Mm -hmm. that was, that's one you pointed out as scary as all get out. Yeah. Was it that you thought you were just going to collapse, fall, smash your face into the ground? Yeah. So, you know, that for those who don't know, you're just extending out over a TRX and you're going to do a pushup with your hands in the TRX handles and your body at about a, you know, 45 degree angle or something. And the handles theoretically should stay close to your body. Theoretically. I mean, and if, if they, you have no shoulder stability, though, those things can go flying out above you, next to you. Exactly. Everywhere. And so that, that's the fear that you won't control it and mm-hmm. you're not in a position to catch yourself. So, and you I mean, to kind of bring that full circle of what you asked about fear avoidance and, and guarding and whatnot, the first time I wanted to try a pushing movement, I tried it against a treatment table and I was able to eccentrically lower myself. So lower myself to the table. And the second it was time to push, everything shut down. I had zero. And so I had to catch myself with my foot. And so, and mind you, I know all the tricks on how to generate tension and I yeah. was locked in, baby. And I still couldn't Pavel push. Pavel is like smiling at your position. Absolutely. Right? Pavel would have thought I was a rock, yeah. you know? And so, um, but no, I couldn't, I couldn't push out from that. And so just getting that understanding of if you're in a position that your body fears, that, that reflexive inhibition is going to, you can't override that. Yeah. And so that was my concern when I did that. So just remembering that, that was, that was a scary one to be able to do those where you're doing a one arm or one arm is in the press position, the other arms coming out like a fly and to be able to do those, that was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just having that understanding of the fear, uh, and being there, uh, and able to overcome that and, and rise above was pretty cool. Nice. Uh, any, any exercises you tried and thought this is complete garbage. I'm, I'm getting rid of this for every patient here on out. <laughs> um, no, but I, you know, I, a lot of people in our profession talking shoulder rehab have made fun of the TheraBand ERIRs, right? Yeah. And I'm sure they have a place like postoperatively when someone can barely move their arm or whatever. I literally did none of that. Okay. Just none. Um, what about like arm pendulums with a, you know, kettlebell or lightweight? But, yeah. So the, the arm pendulum was survival mode early. When okay. my arm would hurt, that was a, I used that as a pain relieving technique Interesting. Um, more so than anything else. Cause that just kind of unweighted a little bit. So, but, uh, it just reinforced how little value there is in those ERIRs to me. Um, because muscles don't work in isolation. Like part of my rotator cuff is disconnected now and my shoulder can do a lot of stuff. And the only reason it can do that is because I trained the connection of how my shoulder works through my core into my leg. So maybe the other way of, I'm, I'm almost preaching the concept of your arm isn't your arm on an island. Your arm is part of your body and these things link together and recognize this link from this shoulder to this core to that leg and exercises like with the ultimate sandbag and some of the others like that, that emphasize that. I emphasize those a lot and I credit them largely to, to what I'm able to do now. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, let me go back into something you just said, because I, I think, well, two questions, have you done any overhead, like hanging, brachiating, uh, any sort of hanging stuff? And, and what did that do for you? Um, at first I did it just to help me. I did, I oriented a step so that I'd be hanging, but could have body weight on my legs. Right. So I could, I could qualify. So just as an aside, my overhead position before I got hurt was not great. Um, it's going to be better (laughs) than it was. Um, so damn long head of your biceps was holding you back, brother, just break it free. (laughs) Break it free. So, um, to be able to have myself in a true overhead position was something I had to work towards getting. Um, so like I would get that again, using the TRX, I would have the, the TRX handles in the front of my hand and just start walking away from the attachment point 
So gradually my arm would ramp up, you know, and then again, talking about the fear, I would just breathe when I got to that sketchy point and just really work on diaphragmatic breathing and trying to remove tension from my body and sneak a little higher. And so I would do, you know, usually five breaths per position, then let myself have rest go higher. So same thing with, I kind of use that as a prelude to being able to hang. Uh, and then once I got to do that, then, you know, started getting pull-ups back. And the other day I, I tried just for the heck of it, because I used to be able to do pull-ups with weight dangling. Um, I was able to do a pull-up with a 25-pound plate hanging between my legs and it sets of three um, and felt like it could have done more, but I didn't want to push it. So it was pretty cool to get that back. I really feel my hanging or my pulling type strength is, is really back to normal. It's just deconditioned from where I was before I got hurt, but my, my shoulder really doesn't leave me for that. So various things from hanging, whether it be pull-up variations from a variety of different grips or just hanging or one I like to do is where you flip your grip, you hang and you know, you've got one pronated, one supinated, and then you flip them around and kind of grip, 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 grip back and forth as you're hanging there. Um, I like that let one me, too. But. Let me ask you this. Cause there's, you know, I think some of us in, in practice, you take a weekend seminar and one of the worst things that happens is you kind of become like kind of a snob, a rehab snob, like, Oh, I would never <laughs> do that. It's like you're saying with the ER and IR band, mm-hmm. you know, but then you realize later, like, huh, that's actually kind of a good idea. Like Indian clubs, the first time I saw them, I was like, I'll never be one of these idiots that's swinging those things around. And then I used They're them. They're pretty great. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, huh. That's interesting. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of rehab I see for, especially older folks, they, they get the pulley or wall walks with the hand, right? They mm-hmm. get the pulley to lift their arm up. Mm-hmm. What did you ever try reversing that? Like, so that is to de-weight the arm and get it overhead. But part of me, part of my brain is saying, don't de-weight the arm. In fact, increase the weight by holding a kettlebell down by your side and doing like a farmer's carry mm-hmm. or grab a bar or TRX at about chest height and lean back. Is that a better way to regain, you know, put some, put some heat into it? Like, yeah, you know, right. Yeah. I, I think mean, one so. of the things I've taken away from the SFMA world or especially gray and, and Greg, Greg Rose is like, whatever I was thinking about, think about it with a bigger weight and just get way more aggressive about the input, you know, a stronger band, a heavier weight, more mm-hmm. demand. And it's weird how it self-organizes a lot. It does. And so for me, I'll give you an example along those lines. Um, when I was trying to get to the next bell up to press, I would take the next bell down and, and run a, a band through its handle and step on the band. So the accommodating resistance of the band. And it really gives your nervous system a lot more to feel. It was amazing to, I think this is what got me over the hump for, I think it was the 35 pounder, maybe the 44, I don't remember. Um, but I belled down, put a band on it, and then did a, a number of reps with the band. And of course, it's elastic. It gets harder and harder as your arm goes higher and higher. And so when I was uh, able to do that, um, then my next set, I went back to that same weight and it felt much easier. So just to remind your nervous system what you can do. Um, but along your lines of what you're talking about with like walking the wall, what I would do when my arm was at that level of ability, I put my hand on the countertop and then sort of hinge forward towards it like I was bowing. Yeah. Yeah. So then I brought my body down to the position of my arm and then tried to keep my arm in line with my head and then stand back up. So it's kind of reverse engineering an overhead position. Almost like a downward dog being an overhead position. Yeah, exactly. So it was kind of like downward dogish, but not on the ground, but using a right. countertop get my arm in line with my ear because I brought my ear down to it and then try to keep those two together as I stood back up. Um, that helped for a while. But uh, yeah, the amount of resistance you can handle down low. You know, Gray Cook was the first person I ever heard talk about using a deadlift as a shoulder exercise because right. it works on the reflexive nature of the cuff job to keep the ball inside the socket. And as you implied, you can juice it a lot more. I mean, I was able to put a lot of weight down there before I could put any weight up above. Well, yeah, one so, hour into rehab, you had already uh, put 315 on a bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah, the fact that I was able to do that was really cool. Um, it, but it's a great example of if you can link, if you can get tight, right, and use other yeah. things that are still intact, you might surprise what you're capable of. Yeah. So, you know, life is better with a fully intact rotator cuff, but just because it's torn doesn't mean you can't still do stuff if you get half a chance. And, the, we had talked earlier about, you know, if some random 40 year old were to come in, you know, 
being older, but also having a lot of exercise knowledge, right? I'm, I'm competent with kettlebells. Yeah. I can do it like a snatch helped me get overhead for the first time. It was so freaking scary. Um, but I did it. Um, yeah. and that allowed me to get overhead the first time actually was with a snatch, not a press. And so, um, knowing how to do that, I would never teach someone in rotator cuff rehab how to do a snatch with a kettlebell. But if they already knew how to do it, I was able to leverage that yeah. skill. Why not though? You know, like, you ever think about that? Like, why not teach them some, what would appear to you as overly aggressive, but when they achieve it, they're going to have a lot of mental win. Mm -hmm. And also it's a great measuring stick on that fear avoidance. Yeah, I would for guess sure. that if I took you before you're ready for that, I don't know how to term that, but before you're ready, right. mm -hmm. that, you know, the snatch needs to end up overhead, but if it ends at, I don't know what we want to say. So if 180 degrees is straight up ahead, if it ends at 150 degrees, which is basically arm in line with ear and eyeball mm -hmm. up like this, is that right. a sign like, hey, I'm still dealing with this fear avoidance? Because a snatch, you're not going to be, you're typically at that stage not limited by the strength, right? Because the strength or the power is mostly developed in your hips. Correct. The it's just a matter of being able to stop it when it got there. Yeah. Huh. And same, same thing with the sandbag. So when you snatch a sandbag, it's a double hand snatch. And the reason I really liked that was the weight was behind me. So I felt like the weight was going to help me get into yeah. a better position. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the stuff that um, was scary was also helpful at the same time. And then I could, once I snatched it up there, then I could do other things like I could lunge or squat or whatever mm -hmm. and start to layer on complexity and connectedness. So with our last couple of minutes here, Dan, because I want to get you back to clinical practice um, and I appreciate your time. You talked about the ultimate sandbag a couple of times and I'm a big fan of DVRT and the, the Hankins and the program they put together with the sandbag. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you are, you actually use it at Cressy's place for your presentation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, it is the... Uh, what the kettlebell was in 2002 at your first FMS, I think the sandbag is now, right? I agree. Hard to get a yeah. hold of, misunderstood, and people think, what could possibly be the difference between a two-handed sandbag that weighs 100 pounds and these two 50-pound dumbbells, right? Yeah. When have you learned that that is the right tool, and, and what can you share with us to use a sandbag for rehab, which it gets a lot of play in the, for whatever reason, MMA world seems to love it in fitness. but. Uh, what do you think rehab wise we should understand about it? It's well, it's just like with the kettlebell, you either have to take somebody's word for it or get your hands on one and feel the difference. Yeah. Um, but I first learned they had a, a lady in our area. Uh, Elizabeth Andrews is her name. Very cool lady. She's got a very Southern accent. So Dan has two syllables when she says it is Dan. And <laughs> so she's just a, a sweetheart. And she turned me on to these things and said, I can't believe you're not using the ultimate sandbag. I'm like, what's the ultimate sandbag? And so anyway, she brought one to me and uh, started showing me some of what it was. And then we actually had her, she was a master trainer for them at the time, uh, come and do an in-service for our staff. And then a few years after that, I hired Josh and Jessica to do an in-service uh, and get all of our staff to, uh, certified in, in their program. And now I'm teaching for them. Very cool. And so, where, um, where do you think it really shines? It, it, sh well, it shines in, in the connectedness. So I think you talk to any rehab professional, whether a PT or Cairo or whatever, and you learn as you go more through your career that every problem is a body problem, not a joint problem, right? So you right. don't have a shoulder problem, you have a body problem. You don't have a back problem, you have a body problem because mm -hmm. of how things are so in interconnected, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you start learning that and you realize that your back is going to work better when your core works together with your arms and your legs and your arm works better when it works better with your core and your legs and your leg works better when it works better with your core and your arm. I have not found another tool in my opinion, better at teaching people how to feel that linkage. And the coolest thing is, is when it's a motor control problem. So if you go SFMA and you determine we have a motor control problem here, and you use the sandbag as the tool, you're correcting it, at least for me, I'm correcting it faster than what I did with anything else. And so Who it's like these one visit amazing changes in what people are capable of or the comfort they have where they didn't have before. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so amazing in rehab. It belongs in rehab. Wow. 
All right. So everybody listening, go get a kettlebell. <laughs> That's right. right. Go get a sandbag. Sorry. And I use the discount code. I heard it with Josh Shatterly. <laughs> Enter Swinsco on the website and nothing will happen, but you'll still end up with a sandbag. <laughs> Yeah. Well, this has been great, Dan. I really appreciate all your insight. Uh, it's exciting to follow you along uh, and see how well you're doing without you. surgery and in rehab. And uh, I don't hope that everybody listening gets an injury of their own to learn from, but uh, I do think it's interesting to go through it yourself and share those lessons from getting into the waves with that surfboard and realize like, oh crap, like this is scarier than I thought, or there's a lot more fear than I thought. Absolutely. We need to give our patients some grace sometimes, you know, when they don't want to do something. So mm-hmm. I'm already thinking of ways to modify certain exercises to give them put, you know, put a, a foam plyo box, like the TRX thing. I'm wondering if I put a mm-hmm. foam plyo box under you, if that would have helped or a band yeah. pulling back to the pull-up bar. That would have been for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, what's changed is, you know, when you see something in, in someone's eyes or you hear just a little hint in their tone of voice, yeah. I ask now, does that hurt or is it scary? Mm-hmm. And if it's scary, then we talk a little bit. And are you scared because you think blah, blah, blah? Yeah. I'm like, okay, well, here's why that's not going to happen. And, right. you know, right. So, and then they immediately have confidence and they really dial it in. I remember uh, having somebody, gosh, I, was, I don't remember what this happened. I was probably having a deadlift or something, but bless their heart for being honest with me. But I was about to have a person deadlift who, prior to me doing that for them, had the firm belief that they're about to hurt themselves because deadlifting is bad for your back. And I just sensed the, like, I knew the person could move well enough to do the exercise, but the way she was moving is like, like, does something hurt? Did you not tell me something? She goes, well, no, I'm just really scared. Like, why are we scared? We talked about this. You, you learned how to hinge. She goes, well, everybody knows deadlifts are bad for your back. I'm like, wow, thank you for sharing that. Let's, let's chat for a minute because everybody doesn't know deadlifts are bad for your back because they're only bad for your back if you do them poorly. Right. Man, we have so much to learn, huh? <laughs> Just <laughs> yes, when you do. think you've taken all the seminars. <laughs> yeah. You know, life, life teaches you well. Yeah. All right. Well, Dan, uh, share, share your clinic name and, and whatnot so people can get a hold of you if they have some questions or okay, ever. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, I, I'm uh, at Peak Sports and Spine Physical Therapy in Issaquah. And if you ever want to get a hold of me, I'm there all the time. If you want to follow me on social media, just at Dan Swinsco. Um, most of my stuff is on Instagram, but also Facebook. And I've got a YouTube channel. If you want to hop on there and subscribe, you can see my videos on YouTube. Awesome. All right. Well, this has been uh, incredibly eye-opening for me and uh, I'm so glad that you were able to connect. So I really appreciate the time on behalf of, uh, Dan Swinsco, his amazing shoulder, uh, <laughs> and everything else that, uh, is amazing about Dan. This is Dr. Josh Satterley saying, go out there. Maximize your license and live the life you dream of. Thanks a lot, Dan. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot for listening to Clinic Gym Radio. If you're looking for more information about me, about us, about our programs, then just head to clinicgymhybrid.com. Again, that's clinicgymhybrid.com. You can check us out there. We've got our accelerator program and a few other programs that will help you get up and running as quickly as possible and making more money while providing excellent active therapy to your patients.